0: Good morning. Welcome to Park Community. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here and glad to be with you this morning. Glad to be looking at Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17 with you again for the second week in a row. Last week we looked at this passage and and, uh, and I set it up by sharing with you my glory days. Those of you who were here remember that I shared a story about beating Duluth Marshall my junior year of high school and I wanted to prove it so I brought the baseball with. The game ball. There it is. So those of you who weren't here, I, I shared the story that my high school baseball team played Duluth Marshall three times in the regular season. We got 10-runned all three times. So we were the eighth seed going into the playoffs. They were the first seed, and so we were playing them in a one-game playoff, single elimination, you lose, you go home type of scenario, and they had 10-runned us three times. And my coach had me pitch the playoff game, and they had 10 run me personally two times. So that means that I'm really bad and they're really good. Our team is really bad, they are really good. But my coach, he in our three regular season games that we had against them, he assessed the situation. He watched the team, he studied the team, he knew their weaknesses, their strengths and their weaknesses. And then he knew our team's strengths and weaknesses. And he said, going into this game, I think we can win. I've assessed what our team has and what their team has. And I think if we develop a game plan and we stick to it, we can win. So on May 24th, 2001, the Cook County Vikings beat Duluth Marshall. I'm sure you guys have all heard about it, it was was epic. Um, We beat them five to two, and we did it, so the team decided to give me the game ball. In hindsight, I think I should have probably turned around and gave it to my coach because he's the one who did all the work of assessing. Um, I wasn't sanctified yet enough as a 17-year-old high schooler, so I hang on to this ball and maybe someday I'll give it to him. but, but what happened, what allowed us to beat this team that was much better than us, it was an impossible situation for us heading into the playoffs, but what allowed us to beat them is that our coach had assessed the situation, he had assessed the opposing team, he had assessed their strengths and weaknesses, he had assessed our team, our strengths and weaknesses, and he said, let's come up with a game plan. And so in this passage, what we see is an impossible situation. What Paul, the author of this letter, is setting up for us is is this impossible situation to live godly rather than to live worldly. We are in a battle. The Christian life is a daily battle. We face an impossible situation to live godly rather than to live worldly. We are fallen by nature. We are sinners by nature and choice. And so the things of verses 5 through 9 are natural to us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lies. Our world is filled with that kind of living. Our world is filled. Last week, as we assessed the enemy and what they have, we looked at um, the world throws at us counterfeit teaching, counterfeit pleasure, and counterfeit image. And so what the world has to offer us is a counterfeit. It has the, the appearance of wisdom or the appearance of pleasure But it doesn't fulfill the greatest desires of our heart. And so last week, we assessed that. And then last week, we looked at what we have, that in Christ, we have pleasures forevermore. And so we don't need to chase the counterfeit pleasures of the world. Because we know that they don't satisfy. So last week, we set up this week. So if you missed last week, you can go online to our website and watch kind of the assessment of the enemy and the assessment of what we have. But today, I want to develop for us a game plan. So if living godly, if living for Christ and living for the world are are at odds, if the world is our enemy, if the world is our opposition, if the world is our adversary, how then we've identified who who the enemy is and what the enemy has, but how now do we engage this daily battle? How do we engage this war on a daily basis? You could use a war analogy, but I'm not great with war tactics, so I'm going to continue on with the baseball analogy today, and we're going to look at what what does it mean for us to create a game plan so that we could win at this passage, so that we could actually apply the things of God in our life and live a godly life rather than a worldly life. So we're just going to continue on. The first thing, the first game plan for us, maybe this isn't going to work, so you may have to do it for me, Sarah. The first game plan for us is to wear the right uniform. Okay, so we know who the enemy is, we know what they have, we know who we are, we know what we have, and our first, our, our first action in engaging this battle is to wear the right uniform. This passage is filled with dressing language. Now, it's, it's metaphorical, but I think what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that we need to put on the right uniform. We need to play for the right team. We need to understand what we have in Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Put off. There's this action, this taking something off. Put off the old self with, with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then down in verse 12. Put on, then, there's this dressing language, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. There's this dressing language in this passage. And, and really, Scripture has a long history of clothing And dressing language. I think Paul is trying to use this analogy, this taking off and putting on imagery to to teach us the gospel. Once again, every week we are encountering the gospel here in the book of Colossians, and Paul is using this dressing imagery, take off and put on. Take off the old self, take off the old uniform, take off the old clothes, and put something new on. He's using this imagery to try and draw us to the gospel. Again, scripture has a long history with clothing, it starts in Genesis 3. Let's look at it. Genesis 3, which is on ch- uh, page 3. Page 2, rather. Let's look at where our story with clothing begins. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. All of they realized they have no clothes on. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." So the first result of sin is that Adam and Eve realize that they are naked. Their eyes become open to the fact that they're naked. All of a sudden, they before this, they had this pure unhindered intimacy with one another and with God. They, they were naked without shame. Like all of creation, all, have, you, have you noticed all the other animals of the earth are naked without shame. They don't cover themselves. They don't wear clothes except for the weird people who have dogs and put clothing on them and walk them down your street. <laughs> but animals, by nature, they're naked without shame. We were created the same way. And as the serpent comes and begins to lie to God's creation and, and they believe him, They believe that wisdom comes from the fallen angel rather than from God and so they eat the fruits. And all of a sudden, they realize that they're naked. No longer are they naked without shame. Now they're naked with shame and they hide from God. Here's the effects of sin is that we feel shame now before this holy God who created us to have a perfect, pure, intimate relationship with him and we hide. We cover ourselves. We run and we hide. Our spiritual... Our biblical engagement with clothing is that the result of sin is that we hide from God and we try and cover ourselves. Adam and Eve, they they sewed fig leaves together to try and cover themselves from the Lord. And then I just love God's grace already here in verse 21. Look at Genesis 3, verse 21. So God comes down and he talks to them and he shares with them the curse. And then verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God made something that would actually, that clothing that would actually remain for them. I mean, God is showing them, okay. Now, because of sin, our relationship is damaged. Our relationship is hindered. You are running and hiding from you are clothing yourselves because no longer can you be in my presence without shame, without feeling shame. And so you took matters into your own hands. You made clothing of fig leaves. Guess what fig leaves do? They wear out. They they wither. They're not going to cover you up. So because now you need to be covered, I will actually come down and I will create for you clothing that will remain, clothing that will cover you. But it's, it's this broken relationship. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have, we have more examples of clothing. I mean, Noah, um, after the flood, he's in a, he's in a tent naked. And um, his sons come in and they cover him with covering to hide his shame, to hide his his embarrassment. And the Old Testament law gives the priests certain clothing to wear to go into the presence of God. So our relationship with God now is hindered. It's it's broken. We have to begin to cover ourselves and clothe ourselves. Look at this in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through th- 1 through 4. The page number is on the screen there and I'm going we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I want you to see this again this incredible imagery of our clothing. It's on page 794 in the Pew Bible, or it's up on the screen there if you don't have a Pew Bible. Zechariah chapter three, and so the prophet Zechariah is having this vision that God is giving him, starting in verse one. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. That's what Satan does. He's the accuser. So Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the Lord said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So again, this biblical imagery of clothing. Joshua, the high priest, is guilty. His clothes are filthy. His garments are filthy rags. And Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. So Joshua, the great high priest, is standing before the Lord and he's guilty of sin. He doesn't measure up. He knows the shame. He knows the guilt. And Satan is standing there to accuse him. And God says, take off the filthy, filthy garments and give him pure vestment. Give him clean clothing. I have a new wardrobe for my chosen people. Though they have to cover themselves and hide from me. And their clothes are dirty and stained and they are guilty and shamed. I have something new for them. I have pure vestments. I have a pure Garment, And then look at Isaiah 61, verse 10, on page 621. Isaiah 61 is, if you remember, in, in the Christmas stories, we always read about Jesus coming into the temple and unrolling a scroll, and he reads Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is verse 1 of Isaiah 61. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so Jesus came and he unrolls the scroll and he says, this is me. This prophecy is about me. But if we continue on, look at verse 10. Here's what it says, and this is now applied to us through Jesus. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. God has taken off our guilty stained clothes and put on us the garments of salvation. Keep going here. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Though we are guilty, though all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, the gospel is beginning to tell us that Jesus removes from us our filthy rags, and he clothes us with pure vestments. He gives us, he gives us the robe of righteousness. And so our first game plan, our first thing that we need to do is put on the right uniform. We need to wear the right uniform. The, the battle of our daily life, it, it, our spiritual daily battle is putting on what is true and right and good. As Paul says it here in Colossians chapter 3, he's saying, put off the old, put on the new. He's saying, put on the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe what Jesus has done. Receive his righteousness. He has given it to you. He has covered you. No longer are you covered in shame. But now, because of Jesus, you are covered in righteousness. If you want to engage the daily battle for your soul, if you want to engage the spiritual battle... You need to know that Jesus has covered you in righteousness. You're no longer guilty. You are no longer filled with shame. You no longer have to cover yourselves to hide from God. And and please, cover ourselves with clothes. I think this is part of the result of our fallen nature that we should wear these things for the rest of our existence, right? But spiritually speaking, metaphorically, the gospel is telling us that Jesus has covered us with his righteousness. We don't have to be ashamed before the Lord. We don't have to run and hide before God. We can put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, the new man, the new garments, the new clothes, the uniform that Jesus has given us. I mean, like my baseball team, when we went down to play Duluth Marshall, we didn't show up in Harlem Globetrotters uniforms, right? We didn't wear a football uniform. We put on our baseball uniform and we were all, we were a team and we were on that team and and here I think what Paul is saying he's saying if you believe in Jesus you are a part of the team nothing can change that Jesus has given you a uniform to wear put it on believe it trust it identify with Jesus identify with his people identify with his team don't put on the wrong clothing don't believe you are something that you're not. Don't believe you're on the team of the world when you're actually in the kingdom of God. You are on Jesus' team. You have his uniform. Wear it proudly. Believe that it identifies you with, you, identifies you with him and his people. Put on the new self. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Verse 12, compassion. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I mean, he's chosen us. He's selected us, he's put us on the team, and he put the uniform on us, and he says, you are part of this thing. So our first plan of attack, our first game plan is to put on the uniform, to keep it on, to believe that Jesus' righteousness covers us, that we are made new. The second plan of attack, the second piece of our battle plan is to work as a team. So if we're a part of this team, if Jesus gives us the new uniform and we have to believe that this is true of us, we are part of the team, and the old is gone, the new has come, we have this uniform, we belong here in this team, we then need to work as a team. The way that my high school baseball team beat Marshall isn't because I pitched a shutout or a no-hitter. We lost 5-2. to two. I had to pitch to contact because I threw like 77 miles an hour and you can't strike people out with a fastball that slow. So I had to pitch to contact, and I had to trust the players behind me would make the plays and get the guys out. I couldn't do it all myself. I wasn't a five-tool star, a five-tool baseball player that could do everything myself. I had to use the team. We had to work as a team. In the same way, I think Paul is telling us here that our sanctification, our growth, our daily battle to live godly rather than to live worldly requires others. We can't do it alone. You're not a rock star Christian. You need other people. Look at verse 12. Put on then, put that uniform on, as God's chosen and holy ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is teamwork. I mean, you can't be compassionate on your own. You have to actually have somebody or something to be compassionate towards. You can't be kind to yourself. Well, maybe you can, but this is all directed towards others. Be kind to others. Be humble in the midst of others. Meek and patient. Bearing with one another. This is a, a, a group project, a community project we work as a team. So what this means is when I struggle with kindness, actually last night I was in my office kind of at home looking over this passage, and one of my kids was, um, I could hear them, I had the door closed, I had music on, and I could hear my kid not listening to my wife down the stairs in a different room. And it continued, and I went down to try and insert myself in the situation and to take care of this, take care of this uh, drama that was unfolding in my house. And I was lacking kindness. I went down, I, you know, I'm like, I'm studying the Bible upstairs, trying to get ready for a sermon. How dare you, kid, be loud? Um, <laughs> sinners by nature and choice. And so I come down a little bit frustrated, and I remove this kid from the situation. I bring them into the other room, and I was lacking kindness. And as I was removing this kid from the situation, bringing them to the other room, my wife said be kind. <laughs> so I bring my kid into the room, and oh, I got me. I, I set the kid down, and I walked away. I said, I'll be back in a couple minutes. It's a community project. We had to work as a team. When I'm lacking kindness, my wife reminds me, be kind. She, her, a prayer that she's been praying recently is, um, there's a verse, and I can't think of it off the top of my head right now, but it says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. So as I'm bringing this disobedient kid into the room, and I'm angry, and I'm lacking kindness, she says, be kind. We were working as a team because I was lacking that. What I was lacking, she had. And I praise God that we have this community, that we have this team. The church is an extended team. One of the things here is patience. I sometimes lack patience. I praise God for Ben, who brings patience. Um, Ben is a, a patient person, and when I get a little bit angsty and try and move a little bit too quickly, Ben slows me down. When we were planting City Vision Church, we realized pretty early on that my personality type is ready, fire, aim. And about two years after we came up with that little phrase, I actually shot at a deer when I was deer hunting and I missed it because I shot too quickly. So it's, it's very accurate. Um, and Ben's personality is ready, aim, 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 <laughs> aim, aim again, maybe fire. We're not sure if we're going to fire or not. But we work as a team. That's what the church is. We work as a team and while we we are all called to grow in compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, we can't say, well, that's not me. I'm going to ignore being kind and I'm going to hang out with somebody who's kind because I'm just not a kind person. We need to grow in that, but we need to realize that very few of us, in fact, none of us become all-stars where we nail every one of these attributes and characteristics. We We need to be a part of a team with other people who have areas of strength where we are weak. It's a community project. In order for us us to grow in godliness, we need to be committed to others who help us to grow in godliness, who can help rub off our sharp edges and who can um, compensate for our weaknesses. And we grow up together in that. I mean, I'm learning to be more kind because my wife keeps reminding me to be kind. If I didn't have that team, kindness would be lacking. And so as we engage this daily battle, it's important that we know we don't do it alone. I mean, Paul is writing to a local church, a group of people covenanted together, and he's not saying, hey, one rock star person in the church, you are the compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, bearing with one another, loving, forgiving, peaceful person. Everyone be like this person. That's nobody in the church. That's only Jesus. Only he does all of these things perfectly every time. And so we need to be amongst a community who together can grow up into all of these things. We work as a team. Those who are compassionate need to hang out with those who lack compassion. And those who have humility need to hang out with those who lack humility. And that takes all of us together working pulling on the same rope. Then the third one here is to use the right equipment. So we put on the right uniform. We dress appropriately for the situation. We put on the righteousness of Christ. Second one, we work as a team. We do this together. We we sharpen and strengthen one another. And the third one is to use the right equipment. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the right equipment. I mean, when we went to play Marshall in the playoffs, we didn't show up with basketballs. How foolish. You can't win a baseball game by throwing a basketball at people. You have to hit the baseball with a baseball bat. So we brought baseball bats. We brought our gloves. We didn't bring lacrosse sticks to try and catch the baseball. We had to show up with the right equipment. And so Paul says, if we want to grow in our spiritual life, if we want to live godly rather than living worldly, we need to use the right equipment. And if if you want to grow in godliness... You need to use the things that will help you to grow in godliness. And he tells us what that is. Verse 16, the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you want to grow in godliness, read God's word. Don't read the Koran. Read God's word. Don't read man-made religion. Read God's word. Amen. Let God's word dwell in you richly. That is the equipment that we use for spiritual growth. If we want to win at this battle, we need to let God's word dwell in us richly because his word shows us who Christ is. His word reminds us of the righteousness, the uniform that we have. His word reminds us that we can't go it alone. And ultimately, his word shows us who the savior Jesus Christ is. Jesus is called the word, the logos. So as we read this, Jesus comes alive in us. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That's the right equipment. Now, it's not just enough to have the right equipment, right? You have to know how to use the right equipment. I mean, if my baseball team showed up with baseball gloves, but we all put them on the wrong hands, that still wouldn't work. So we have God's word. That's the equipment that we use. But how do we use the equipment? Here's the right piece of equipment. How do we use it? I think Paul gives us some examples of how to use it. And what I want to do is tie it into our identities as a church. If you look on the front of your bulletin, We have three identities. And I think Paul here is is telling us that that we grow, that we let the word of God dwell in us richly in three ways. One is by living as brothers and sisters who practice his commands. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the tool. This is the equipment. How do we do that? By teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We are in a community together. Brothers and sisters, we are a family. We're on a team. We're in a family. And what do we do in that family? We practice his commands. We put these things into practice. And, and what does he say? He says, teaching and admonishing one another. So there's preaching, there's teaching, there's admonishing. And admonishing means like a word of correction with a, with a joyful heart. So it's when I see you doing something wrong, I'm willing to, to call you on it. When you see me doing something wrong, you're willing to call me on it. We are teaching each other the gospel. And it's not just on a Sunday morning for an hour, but it's in the context of relationship. We are doing life together. We are teaching and admonishing one another with God's word. How do we let this dwell in us richly? Well, you may want to have a devotional life where you spend a half an hour every morning drinking coffee, reading God's word. That's a way to let it dwell in you richly. But it's not just you and Jesus. It's you and a community. To you and a team, teaching and admonishing one another in God's Word. That's why we do what we do at Park Community Church. We believe that we're a family, and in this family, we have been commanded to teach and admonish one another the Word of God. That's how we engage the daily battle, is in community, speaking the gospel to one another. Kind of this, um, some people have called it gospel fluency means that in everything, we're able to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, into bear in our daily lives. So when you're struggling at work, when you struggle with a coworker, or, or you're struggling with just the task at hand, you have brothers and sisters who can remind you of the gospel. That, hey, your identity isn't wrapped up in who you are at work. You are a son or a daughter of God. You're a brother and sister of the church. And so work hard. But don't get your identity wrapped up in your work because Jesus has given you a new identity. He's put robes of righteousness on you. When we're struggling with sin and we're beating ourselves up, we need brothers and sisters who can say, stop feeling shame. Jesus has removed the shame from you. He gave you a robe of righteousness. If you are in Christ, God sees you as holy and beloved and chosen. Stop beating yourself up. That's what brothers and sisters do for one another. That's what it means to teach and admonish one another in the gospel. Next one, sons and daughters, pursue God. So Paul goes on, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That's his brother and sister in relationship thing. And then he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When we say that we're sons and daughters, we've been adopted by God through Christ as sons and daughters. So we have this vertical relationship. We can pursue God the Father, and God the Father pursues us. And one of the ways that we do this, we do this in many ways, but one of the ways that we do this is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why when we gather together, we sing gospel songs, songs that remind us of our identity, because this is how we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We sing what's true. And so what we sing, the words that we sing, are far more important than the way that we sing them. We sing what's true. He says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. By the way, hymns isn't a book that you open and follow along. There wasn't a hymnal when this was written. This predates a hymnal. I've heard people use this verse to say, we need to use the hymnal. That's the only spiritual way to sing songs, is to open up the book and to follow along. It's not even That wasn't, didn't even exist then. Hymn, it's a spiritual song. It's a song directed to God the Father. And so this is what we do as a church. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then lastly, neighbors and witnesses. We are sent out into the world as neighbors and witnesses. So we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Look at verse 17. In all that we do, okay, Paul says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, this is in speech and in action, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We spend about an hour, one to two hours a week here on a Sunday morning, right, worshiping, admonishing, teaching one another. But what we need to do is go out into the world as neighbors and witnesses, and in whatever we do, in word and deed, We do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly at work, Monday through Friday. That's not a purely secular activity to get you through to the spiritual activity of going to church on a Sunday morning. All of life for the Christian is sacred. All of life for the Christian is to be done. All of our words, all of our deeds are to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God our Father through Him, So we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we go to work. If you're an architect, you design buildings for the glory of God and the good of people. You want a structurally sound building so it doesn't topple over on the people who work in it. That's done to the glory of God. If you're a teacher, you go to work and you teach children so that they could understand how the world works, so that they could flourish in the world as they understand English and Spanish and math and science. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you are raising your kids so that they would understand the things of God and the things of the world, and you are investing in them for the glory of God and the good, and their good, that they would function well in the world in which God has put them. If you are a dentist, you go to work taking care of people's teeth so that they could have teeth to eat wonderful food with. It's done for the glory of God. If you're in business, you build business and you go to business so that you can make money, that you could provide jobs so that people could have a life that is flourishing for the glory of God. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we do all things as Christians, all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just Bible study, not just prayer, not just singing, not just coming to church but going in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and bringing the good news into every nook and cranny of society. In fact, Martin Luther, who, again, we're we're celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation. Just 500 years ago on Tuesday, God moved among the church, and Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall of the Wittenberg Chapel. And, um, and one of the phrases that he used often, I love this phrase, he says, God doesn't need your good works. So we don't go out as neighbors and witnesses proclaiming the gospel for God's favor. Our, God doesn't need our good works. He has everything. Who needs your good works? Your neighbor, your coworker, your family, your friends. So we go out in the name of the Lord Jesus, blessing the world, seeking to bring God's flourishing into the world. We go out as neighbors and witnesses, proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, doing all that we do in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is how the word of Christ dwells in us richly. So our game plan, know the gospel. We've been purchased by Jesus' blood. We have the righteous robes of Christ. No longer do we need to go about life feeling guilty and shamed. And like we're playing for the wrong team. Like, well, I know I'm a Christian, but man, I live worldly. That may be true, but what you need to start doing, if that's the case, if you feel like I live more worldly than I do godly, you need to start believing what's true, believing the gospel. That God has given me a new uniform. He has put it on me. The righteousness of Jesus is mine. I'm on this team. He believes in me. He has, he has chosen me and calls me a holy and beloved one. I'm on the team. He's clothed me in righteousness. Now I need to work with my team. Point two, I need others to help grow in me godly living and godly character. I can't do it on my own. I'm incapable of doing it on my own. I need other people to speak into my life, to challenge me, to confront me, to encourage me, to build me up, to bear with me in love. And then lastly, you need to use the right tool The word of God, let it dwell in you richly. How do you do that? By singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. By admonishing and teaching one another. And by leaving here to go into your sphere of influence with the gospel, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly to bring human flourishing to society in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good word. I thank you for this passage and how rich and deep it is. God, I I do pray that we would engage the spiritual battle that we're a part of with wisdom. Lord, may we, the gospel applied to us is passive. We did nothing. You did all the work, Jesus. You lived the perfect life, the one that we can't live. You died the sacrificial death, the one that we should have died for our sin. And you overcame sin and death in the grave. And you've given us this free gift. And we're able to receive it. We've passively received new life. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take that into our daily living. I pray that we would actively pursue holiness and godliness I pray that now that we have this new uniform, now that we are part of the team, and now that we have the word of God, I pray that we would actively foster it living in us. May we get after it, Lord. May we put off the old and put on the new through the power of the Spirit. Pray that you would work this out in us for your glory, our good, and the growth of your gospel around the world. Lord, we pray these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen.